my parents really did something extraordinary. They created this place where we could feel loved and fully human. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. This week, producer Heather Bigley speaks with Raj Mankat, the op-ed editor of the Houston Chronicle. A shorter version of this interview ran as part of episode 111 about building new communities of faith, which you can find on our website. You know, I realize I always say your name Raj with a soft J, but that may not be how you say your name. The interesting thing about the J is that where my family's from, they can't even hear the difference between a hard and a soft J. Oh, interesting. When people ask me which one it is, you know, it's it's actually <laughs> indeterminate. So your family's originally from Gujarat. You've been back to visit Gujarat multiple times. Is that true? Yes, but not very, very often. So when I was a graduate student at the University of Houston, I took a little bit of time off from my studies and spent three or four months in India on a kind of roots trip. But I was volunteering after this earthquake hit Gujarat. I worked at a nonprofit, an NGO, in the town where my grandfather was born called Drangadra. It's on the border of India and Pakistan. I never made it to Kudrat when I was in India. It's off most people's path, has some extraordinary architecture. But it seems to me from the little I know, it's also really important, politically speaking, Gujarat. Yes. So Gandhi was born in Porbandar, Gujarat, which is also where my grandmother was born, one of my grandmothers. Also, Gujarat was where the Portuguese first arrived and set up some of their trading posts. So Gujarat played a big role in the encounter with Europe. But also the president, Modi, doesn't he have ties to Gujarat? That's right. Yes. So the current prime minister, Narendra Modi, is also from Gujarat. And he came up through Gujarat and was the chief minister there. That speaks to the range, actually, of, of politics that have come out of Gujarat because, you know, Gandhi was Congress. Right. First, and Modi comes out of the BJP. BJP. Your parents moved you to Mobile, Alabama, when you were a kid. And you've talked in the past about the sort of community that your parents built there. Can you talk to us about that community, why it was important, what your parents' motivations were, what it looked like? It was the kind of situation where if you were at the mall, Bel Air Mall, and you saw another Indian family, you would walk straight up to them and invite them to dinner. There were so few Indians that we all kind of stuck together in a way you wouldn't find in almost any other context. So India is huge I mean, in terms of its population and its diversity, the number of languages spoken, the number of religions. All of us came together, Hindus, Muslims, Sikh, Jain, Christians, and we would gather at each other's houses, have dinners, kids would play. It was a real respite, kind of a place to feel safe and valued because the, the contradiction was that the United States and Mobile had welcomed us and it was this incredible land of opportunity, but it was also a difficult place, especially for us to grow up in. 
the thing that's hard to get across to people, including Indian Americans, South Asian Americans, what it was like to be at the vanguard, to be the first of the Indian American to be growing up in the U.S. There wasn't any kind of script. There wasn't any kind of precedent or way to do things. There was no expectation about how we were supposed to be. There wasn't even this model minority myth. There wasn't an idea that we were supposed to sound a certain way, that when we spoke, we would sound like white people, or should we sound like black people? It was all unknown. You told me a story about being at school and the white kids around you peppering you with questions about your beliefs and you going home and asking your dad about those same beliefs. Can you tell us that story? My parents decided to send me to an Episcopal school. It was started in in the wake of Brown versus Board of Education. So you had this situation where the public schools weren't funded well and you had these private schools that were almost entirely white. And I was generally the only person of color in the classroom. And Alabama is in the Bible Belt. Yes, We know this. Alabama is is a deeply religious state. Yeah. It's on the radio stations. uh, It's It's in the public discourse. It could be Boy Scouts. It could be just a park. It could be anywhere. Somebody would really kind of confront me about my spiritual background or my faith. This was also the time that Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom came out in the theaters. So the depiction of Hindu people was that we ate monkey brains and there was this character who could like open people's chest and like pull their heart out. And Pat Robertson was a figure on TV and would hold up like a image of Kali or, or Ganesh or something like that and say like, look at what these people worship the devil. And so people would confront me and say like, well, why do you, why do you worship an elephant headed God? And sometimes it would be like that, you know, it would just be curiosity. Other times they really wanted me to hear the word of Christ. And the thing is, when you're just a kid, you're kind of open ended as well. And so I would just go home and ask those questions to my parents in India when you're, if you're growing up Hindu, the stories and the beliefs are just part and parcel of life. You might not actually go to a temple to learn about the philosophy or learn about the stories or way of being. It might come through a meal that's being cooked and some stories being told while you're cooking. You know, it might just be on the TV and there might be some like Hindu television program, or you might be walking down the street and there's like a temple there. And it's just part of the rhythm of your life. So when I would ask my parents these questions, they actually didn't have like a ready-made answer because they didn't grow up with people challenging them all the time about their beliefs. My dad especially is really well-read. He also knows how to not just read in our vernacular language, Gujarati, but he can read and understand Sanskrit. He decided that on Sundays, he would do this equivalent to Bible study where he would teach my older brother and me about Hinduism. He mentioned this to some of the other parents at one of these Indian get-togethers, and they said, well, we want our kids to be there too. So first couple of times, it's just me and my brother in our living room, but it was just a couple of months and suddenly we, all the families couldn't even fit into anybody's living room. 
Like we would push the couches back and all sit on the floor, squeeze in. But pretty soon we moved to meeting at the Jewish Community Center. They were really welcoming to us and they didn't really use their building on Sundays. So once a month, we would meet at the JCC and it would be my dad and another elder named Virupakshakathandabani or Dr. Pani as we called him. And they would teach us. Dr. Pani would open with some meditation. We would chant, oh, and then different families had kind of submitted their favorite prayers, the slokas, and we gathered them into this kind of binder, this notebook, and then we recite them together. And then my dad would take us through some verses from the Bhagavad Gita and sort of explain them. And then Dr. Bani would share some stories from the Ramayana or from the Mahabharata. And then we would sing spiritual songs, which for us are call and response. The the drummer, the person who played Babla, was actually a Muslim man, and he came every month. There were Jain families, and sometimes they would take over and, and teach us about Jainism. So we would sing, and the songs, they came from all different parts of India. And again, you wouldn't see that in, in very many places, like where people from North Gujarat, I mean, North India, South India, all kind of mixing it together. It was the kind of idea of what India was supposed to be that the Indian nationalists had all along, but, you know, never really happened, except in this crazy corner of Alabama. The women coordinated these awesome potlucks. And, uh, and then we'd play and we'd do that once a month. That was a really important part of my life. So going back to the environment at the Christian school, I got better about explaining it because my parents and all these other parents went to these great lengths to make sure that we were raised up in our, in our culture, in all its sort of variety and, and richness, or at least the best they could do in this outpost of the Indian diaspora. I mean, this is, to me, such a beautiful story of community and support. And essentially, it's about your own survival, right? Yeah, it is about survival. The thing that my parents really, I don't think they could grasp is that it's one thing to come with your sense of self fully formed to the United States and then be in a foreign environment and to be constantly challenged. That's one thing, in it. and it's hard for them, right? They, they persevered through it. They also have a huge amount of gratitude. I think the thing I want to make sure I get across <laughs> is one thing I've become more and more aware of when I go to other countries now is that the United States really is exceptional in the degree to which it accepts people from other countries. Right. And people feel like they are American. My parents feel like they are Americans. I feel like I'm an American person. I think that that's pretty unusual. I don't think a lot of other countries have that kind of capacity to just like absorb so many different kinds of people and, and to allow them to be sort of themselves, but also feel American. It's not perfect, right? There's, I mean, there's huge problems. Any case. So it's one thing for people to come with a fully formed identity in the United States. And it's another to grow up here, especially when you're the first group and, and there's, no, there's no precedent and there's no guidance. I, I don't even know how to explain it. It's like, because I don't think very many people have that experience, right? Because if you're, if you're a white person in the United States, most places, most of the time, the whole culture is set up around what you're familiar with uh, and you're sort of raised in, in that mainstream. But even other groups like African-American people, 
African-American people in Alabama faced hostile conditions all of the time, right? Like right. this is just, this is the eighties, the early eighties, late seventies. It was just like 10 or 15 years since the Edmund Pettus bridge march, right? Right. Like John Lewis had just gotten his skull cracked. Right. By the police. By the police trying to vote. I was growing up with the children of the people who cracked his head. Let me put it that way. Right. Right. So, so black people in Alabama faced very hostile circumstances, but they went home to a community of people that had created all kinds of, of uh, infrastructure to, to help them survive and feel whole and fully human, namely the church, right? Right. I didn't have that, except that I did. You know, my, my parents really and, and the other parents in that community did something extraordinary. They created this place where we could feel loved and fully human. Right. The thing that I'm still trying to understand is how that alienation actually, it's not separate from your spirituality. It's not just incidental that you feel deeply alienated and this like abiding, deep sense of connection with a, a spiritual tradition. Those two things are related. They actually feed each other and and I think the early Christian history is full of that. In Houston, where there is a huge diaspora of Southeast Asians, perhaps you haven't felt the same need to create that exact kind of community for your own children, right? You don't have that same need to fill because of what Houston looks like. Could you talk yeah. about that a little bit? I was really kind of struggling with that. So I grew up in Mobile, Alabama, and then I moved around a bunch and got really easy jobs, and I ended up in, in Houston, partly because it has a lot of the same cultural history that Mobile does, the same kind of flora and fauna. It's on the Gulf Coast as a port, but it's so much more cosmopolitan and has a gigantic electric Latino community and a lot of Asian folks too. A whole lot of South Asian folks as well. The strange thing is that I don't spend a lot of time with other Indians or, or South Asian people. I married a white person. I don't actually go to temple every week. Well, the thing is, if there was something like what I grew up with to take my kids to, I think I would jump at it. But it doesn't exist because there's so many Indians in Houston that you have this atomized either by region or language or by like these really specific kinds of Hindu traditions. And they have these buildings, these fantastic marble buildings and professional priests. I feel like I failed actually to give my kids that sense of connection and rootedness in the Indian spiritual tradition. But I try, I do try. So my father is this academic physician and Dr. Barney is also a really educated person. He's a therapist. They were kind of reconciling the Hindu tradition with this rigorous scientific worldview that they had. And that was like normal to me. <laughs> right. And then when I went back to them when I was like in college, I said, well, you guys said this, but how do you square it with the scientific method and all this doubt that we cultivate? They would just say, well, those are very good questions you're asking. <laughs> <laughs> 
so so there's a lot of room for doubt in the Indian tradition, but I found myself drawn to the corners because in Houston, there's so many options. I found myself drawn to the parts of the tradition that have that kind of doubt or a tradition of social justice and equality, right? Because one of the problems with uh, the Indian tradition is it bound up with casteism. And I really wanted take my kids to a group that firmly rejected it, not just sort of ignored it. So I took them to a Jain temple and they had Gujarati lessons there. Uh, and I thought that was exciting, but I didn't fit in there because all the other parents there were recent immigrants. And I was the immigrant's child and my children were the next generation after that. So they weren't really teaching Gujarati to people who didn't have any knowledge of it or very bare knowledge of it. They're teaching it to kids who actually were in homes where they spoke Gujarati and they were just kind of firm it up. So that didn't work out. And I'm not Jane. I mean, I was around Jane people in Mobile and I have this affinity, but the fluidity that I had in Mobile and that really you would see in India, there was more fluidity and it didn't quite fit. But when my daughter was about 12 or 13, she got invited to a bat mitzvah. So that's the Jewish tradition where, in this case, a girl demonstrates that she's mastered sort of level knowledge and ability to read scripture. And there's a big celebration party. My daughter came back and she was really jealous. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, do we do that? So we actually do have a tradition called the Upanayana, or sometimes it's called a thread ceremony. And it's usually done for Brahmin boys, but it doesn't have to just be for Brahmin boys. It's different than a bar or bat mitzvah because it's done at the beginning of your studies. But I wanted to adapt the Jewish tradition a bit and sort of mix and match. So we searched high and low for a priest that would do the ceremony for a girl. It took a while. Eventually, we found a priest with this group called Arya Samaj. They're Hindu in the sense that they trace back their, they look at scriptures that are the Vedas, which are considered Hindu scriptures, the ancient scriptures. But it's a reform movement that rejects caste and tried to help India become free from British rule while reforming itself, but doing so by going deep into its traditions. This priest agreed to do the ceremony, and my dad and I created this curriculum sort of based on the one my dad developed in Mobile. My daughter dove into it and she learned how to read the Nagari script and she memorized some of the same slokas that I memorized as a kid. And then she wrote a little speech about what she thought the tradition was before she started learning more about it. She was sort of uh, thinking about the role of women in, in Hinduism and how she found meaning in these ancient slokas that reference divine energy that's associated with goddesses. Which makes me think of her name, Leela. That's right. I gave my kids kind of traditional religious names. So my daughter's name is Leela, but her full name is Leela Lambita Parvata, which means dancing, leaping over the mountains in sport. It's one name for the Ganges or the Ganga River as it comes down the Himalayan mountains. So for this ceremony, we invited a lot of our friends in town and a few of my family members flew in. So there was a mix of people from India and white people, black people, Latino people. They all kind of learned about Hinduism, the Indian spiritual tradition. There was this fire and it's a beautiful day and the clouds broke. 
sunlight came down and the priest took these cuttings of leaves and made this altar and my daughter was pouring ghee into the fire and it would light up and her face would light up and she repeated these ancient slokas that the priest asked her to and uh, and then we smeared her face with turmeric powder and better sweets we celebrated all of her teachers and her school teachers were there. It was a beautiful day. And so I guess I didn't completely fail. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's actually a very American story, if you don't mind me saying. I think the great thing about American secularism is that it allows you to pick and choose what you resonate with for your own spiritual practice. And a lot of people say, you know, secularism is bad. And I just feel like we no longer have shame about like, no, but this is what I like. I like this from the Jewish tradition. And I like this from the Hindu tradition. And I like this. My parents taught me this other thing. I think we've gotten away from saying, no, you can't mix that. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Yeah. If I go to a yoga class and the yoga teacher is kind of, you know, not really engaged with the deep underpinnings of yoga it's not exercise right it's a spiritual practice <laughs> yes but there's a trace of it there and sometimes i see these yoga teachers and they have the bearing of somebody who has this kind of a spiritual life so i'm happy for them and, and i'm happy they're teaching me yoga and i enjoy it and and, and, and i don't look down i actually i just love it actually the thing i worried about is it's if you mix and match you end up not really having to struggle right. with a particular tradition's difficulty. Every spiritual tradition has things that a thoughtful person will struggle with, like it could be how a religion, how, how women are treated or how casteism is, is sort of bound up with its scriptures. Prosperity doctrines. Prosperity doctrines. There's all and, kinds and, of stuff, yeah. I think part of being a spiritual person is having to, to deal with that think about it and to you need to be able to struggle with it because you can't escape it by going to some other spiritual tradition. If you think you're escaping it by going or mixing and matching from another spiritual tradition, what's really happening is you're dodging the questions. Right. There are whole groups of people somewhere else who are still living under those challenges, we'll say, right? And just because you don't have to deal with them doesn't mean that they're gone. I mean that's that's the irony of all of this is that my family is Brahmin. Right. Uh, we're from a, a special group of Brahmins. We're not priests, but we're still in that caste that had centuries of privilege. So in India, I would have, if I was raised there, I would have benefited from all of that privilege, maybe without really being aware of. Whereas in the United States, I, I have dark skin compared to other people, and I experienced a whole lot of discrimination, often violence, physical and verbal violence. And I end up identifying with people who are oppressed. And so I ended up having this double vision, which I think it formed and deepened my own spiritual practices. Yeah, back to that alienation. I mean, when you talked about alienation, it made me think how that seems to be an important first experience in developing a, a spiritual life is feeling alienated from something. Maybe it's from your body. Maybe it's from your society. Maybe it's from your family. Maybe it's from, right, there's so many things. So that would cause you to reach out for some sort of divine connection. Maybe I'm wrong. What do you think? There's this book I started reading 
It's really amazing. It's called The Joy Unspeakable by Barbara Holm. It looks at the contemplative tradition in the Black church. It sort of traces it to Africa and through the Middle Passage and then through slavery and into Jim Crow era all the way till now. And it's actually a critique of the way Black churches operate now. It has these extraordinary passages about the Middle Passage. And that's, of course, not anything that my ancestors experienced, but those passages really spoke to me. Even though you aren't like part of a community, you actually find yourself reaching out to different people for advice or support in a way that you might have done had you had the community. So can you talk a little bit about that experience in Houston of sort of seeing other religious figures or spiritual leaders and reaching out to them? I think partly because of what I went through in Mobile, I ended up in a lot of these positions where I'm a kind of a cipher for the whole community. So I'm the op-ed editor at the Houston Chronicle. I literally am the person that that hundreds and hundreds of voices go through. And, and then I, I curate and edit and fact check and produce them and get them into the opinion section, the letters to the editor, essays. And uh, especially these last two and a half years, it's been difficult. Right? It's hard to actually sustain this work, but I tried to bring church leaders into the opinion section. And when I end up reaching out to them, I also end up asking them for help and counsel and advice. That really has helped sustain me. I'm trying to make a, a community of communities. That's kind of my role in the world. Yeah. I carry all those people with me, like all the people who tried to convert me or the people who struggled when they met me, the people who were mean about it and the people who were just curious or kind about it or, or trying to teach me through their example or people who are really compassionate, accepting all of them. They're all with me. You contain multitudes. Is that what you're trying to say? Yeah, to me? <laughs> I really do. We all do. We all do. But man, I have this alter ego that I journal through and his name's Dr. Panipuri. Panipuri is this snack that we have. It's like this crispy piece of round bread. Or it's like a it's like a a round little fried sopapilla tortilla kind of thing. And you poke a hole in the top of it. And then you pour a bunch of stuff into it and sweet stuff and spicy stuff and some beans and onions and and uh, spices. And then you eat the entire thing all at once and so it explodes in your mouth. But this this cracking thing, you know, it's cracked and then you like fill it with everything. It's right. Just, it's an explosive combination that somehow works. And uh, that's how I think of myself like, wow, my whole identity and sense of self is just crushed and like pulled apart and messed up bad by where I grew up, how I grew up. And then, but also like healed and bound together and filled with so many different voices. That's our time for today. Thanks to Raj Mankat for sharing his experience and thoughts about community, identity, and spirituality. You can read Raj's op-ed pieces at the Houston Chronicle, which also runs a daily Bible verse that Raj is in charge of choosing. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. 
In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. And if you enjoy the show, be sure and leave a comment or review where you get your podcasts. Help spread the word. Our Twitter feed is at InGoodFaithBYU. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join me again soon, right here, In Good Faith.